Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Gerald Hurwitz. I'm the Associate Director of Helix Center. And I apologize for the delay in our getting started. One of our participants, uh, due to a family emergency, is unable to make this talk on uh, misinformation, uh, coding and misinformation, and uh, the birth of NFTs. Um, and I'll say a word or two about what we're thinking this topic will be about, but we're, the participants are going to be the ones who really help decide, and you'll decide among yourselves whether they're telling you the truth or not. <laughs> Let me say something first about Laura Edelson, who's not here, unfortunately, but I'll, I'll give a brief description. Uh, she is a postdoctorate researcher at NYU with the Cybersecurity for Democracy Project, which she co-directs with Damon McCoy. There she leads the Ad Observatory and the Ob Observer projects, which aim to increase public transparency of digital advertising, particularly during elections. We have here with us today Susanna Martinez-Conde. Is that the way to say it? Yeah, that, yeah good. She is an award-winning neuroscientist, author, and a professor, and a professor at the State University of New York Downstate Health Sciences University. She is the founder and executive director of the annual Best Illusion of the Year contest, which inspired her most recent book, Champions of Illusion, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. Her first book, the international bestseller, Slate of Hands, Slate of Mind, What the Neuroscience of Magic Reveals About Our Everyday uh, Deceptions, was, a, was published by Holt and won the Prisma Prize for Best Science Book of the Year. Martinez Conde is one of the premier science communicators in the United States and has made television appearances on the National Geographic's channels, Redesign My Brain, Discovery Channel's Head Games, The Daily Planet, PBS's Nova, Star Talk, CBS, Sunday Morning, and The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum. Andy Guess is an assistant professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University. His research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of political communication, public opinion, and political behavior. Via a combination of experimental methods, large data sets, machine learning, and innovative measurement, he studies how people choose, process, spread, and respond to information about politics. Recent work investigates the extent to which online Americans' news habits are polarized. The popular echo chamber hypothesis, patterns in the consumption and spread of online misinformation, and the effectiveness of efforts to counteract misperceptions encountered on social media. Yotem Apir, is that, did I get to, yeah, good, he's saying good enough. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, is uh, an assistant professor of communication at the University of Buffalo. His work combines computational methods for text mining, neta network analysis, experiments, and surveys to study media content and effects in the areas of political science and health communication. Dr. Appear uh, authored and co-authored more than 300 peer-reviewed academic papers published in journals such as the American Journal of Public Health, Health Security, Tobacco Regulatory Science, Risk Analysis, PLOS One, Journal of Communication, Communication Research, Public Understanding of Science, Journal of Public Health and Health Communication, Communications Methods and Measures, and more. So with that, um, we're going to get started um, I'll, after I take my seat. <laughs> 
Okay, so I, I, I'm interested in getting things underway, and I invite any of the three of you to jump in and um, express at least some sort of ideas about what you're seeing, what every one of us, I think, is seeing in our culture about misinformation, polarization, et cetera, and obviously, because the conference is on uh, coding, we're interested in sort of how digitalization of information may have been, may be playing a role in this, so. Who wants to start? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll offer a, like a, a sort of starting idea and feel free to sort of um, revise it or throw it away later, but just to get things started. Um, you know, I think part of what's happening uh, or what has been happening is that um, we have, you know, incredible um, digital communication technologies that have enabled many people who previously, you know, were not able to express themselves at the sort of ease and scale that they can now. Um, and this created a lot of opportunities for different um, people, different perspectives, and different groups um, to, you know, uh, express themselves uh, in society and also to, you know, engage with society and participate in society um, in new ways that I think have um, sort of uh, cut against the usual kinds of inequalities. Um, however, uh, what, that's, what that also means, another way of saying that is that sort of traditional gatekeepers, uh, including gatekeepers of information, have lost their kind of um, received power. And so uh, kind of a flip side of that potentially is that, you know, gatekeepers who, you know, exist to kind of maintain hierarchies, but also to, you know, vet information, uh, for better or for worse, um, have lost some of their traditional power. And so one of the big questions uh, today is sort of who, who or what, uh, including technologies, um, is replacing these um, kind of standard gatekeepers um, that have been in place uh, for, you know, let's say 100 years. Um, and how do we as society sort of adapt to this new reality? And I, and I can add to that from a neuroscientific perspective. Um, it, our, our brains are not wired to multitask. It's, uh, it's the opposite. We're wired to pay attention to one thing and one thing only and suppress everything else. So what happens is that um, when we are pulled in all directions, we cannot really pay attention to more than one thing at once and, and, uh, and arrive to uh, any type of quality judgment or performance. This is something that happens in magic shows, actually. Magicians uh, get us to multitask. In a magic show, they split our attention, and that's how they get away with magical murder. What happens these days is that with uh, all these uh, uh, digital content and, and social media, this is really pushing our capabilities to pay attention to the limit, and so we are it's very taxing to be able to determine what's actual data, what's misinformation, uh, because everything seems to have the same priority and we are not uh, focusing and analyzing in any depth for any length of time. I mean, one of the um, big questions that I think are, are on my mind recently is are we really in a new era of, of post-truth? I mean, because you hear it everywhere, right? That we move to a different time in human history, but it's not clear to me, uh, based on the empirical work that we've been conducting um, and based on uh, uh, reviews of, of previous eras, that we really crossed a, a rubric onto a different time in terms of relationship between humans and truth or humans and information. Um, 
I'm wondering in recent uh, years, why, why is everybody so you know, preoccupied with misinformation now? Um, it wasn't like that 10 years ago, right? Uh, when, I, when I started, I'm, I'm relatively, uh, this guy's new in the area, but when I started in 2010 to look into misinformation, was kind of a niche topic in, in social sciences. I wonder if something really changed in the way we communicate with one another, or some external events happened that kind of pushed us to look for explanations. In other words, are we sitting here because something really changed in how we use media, or are we sitting here because we're still trying to explain to ourselves the 2016 election? Yeah, what is going on? Well, this reminds me, you know, there are, I, I think there's sort of two general classes of uh, commentators on what's going on with us. Uh, so the one class says, oh my God, this is completely different. We're really in trouble. And then I'm sure you've all seen other articles that suggest that, oh no, you know, back in 1820, there was just as much politicization. Maybe there was more people were fist fighting in the, in the Capitol building, uh, et cetera. Uh, if, if it's true that there was an earlier period where people, where there was more of this sort of fomentation of politicization, um, can we see anything in common then from now? Is it, is it possible to draw a line between those two um, processes? Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we're fundamentally the same people that we were a couple of hundred years ago and, and even much earlier. Uh, and we, we are, uh, actually we have the, the capability and even you could say the drive to lie and, uh, and to deceive. The, the brain is the great storyteller and uh, we try to make sense of reality by telling stories about what's happening to others as well as to ourselves and that we make incorrect connections between cause and effect. That has always happened. Even uh, it's something as easy as um, uh, trying to trick somebody into thinking that we're interested in something that we're not or the other way around. We are able, as, uh, as primates, we are able to pay attention to something that we're not looking at for with the intent to deceive. Other primates do this as well, but not every species is able to do it, to dissociate what they're looking at from the place that they're actually paying attention to. So, so we have these, uh, these mechanisms that are inherent to our brains that uh, we, we have always lied to one another. I think what's different now is the tools that we have uh, accessible to us. And I think that it used to be much easier if you don't know, okay, is this true or, or this, is, this, is this a falsehood? And you go and you try different sources and uh, you can arrive to the veracity of a particular issue, I think, much more um, in a much uh, more reliable way. I mean, even today you see an image, you see a video or an audio record, you cannot really, really tell if this is manipulated or not. This did not used to be the case. I guess misinformation has always been there. It's not a new phenomenon. The only thing that seems to me is new is more people have access to uh, internet and so on, which allows them to express their opinions, which before they had no access. 
So if, uh, let's say, you were organizing a coup in a foreign country, you gave a story about what was happening that was in the papers and everybody accepted and nobody said. And if you knew information that countered the motives that were expressed, you couldn't make it public because there was no outlet. Now, you have questions about, I don't know, whatever political issue, you immediately put it on the internet and you have an opinion and then other people follow you. And of course, part of the problem is the more uh, you claim to have some kind of conspiracy behind it, the more excited you make people get and the more you have tension. Yeah, I think, I mean, one way of kind of restating a part of what you said is that, you know, propaganda has always been with us. It's traditionally been the domain of, of elites. Mm -hmm. And today, um, you know, the ability to produce propaganda, like a lot of things, has been democratized. And so now anyone can sort of make up their own stories and they can have it disseminated, you know, instantaneously at, at great and unprecedented scale. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one thing that has changed, right? Yeah, and, so. and there are positive aspects to it because, uh, like you said, there used to be like a one version of the truth and, uh, and there was no questioning. And that uh, I'm thinking, uh, well, something that, I, that I've read about is the, the flu of 1918, what we call the Spanish flu. Well, it turns out it, it did not originate in Spain, actually. It's still debated where it actually it's China, originated. China, right? <laughs> right. Sorry. Start a new rumor. <laughs> exactly. So, but uh, the point is that uh, apparently it is the case that uh, the Spanish newspapers were the ones that were not lying about the numbers. Other places were suppressing that information, so that's how it became to be known as the Spanish flu. But uh, so there was like a kind of like a worldwide misinformation uh, back then, uh, 100 years ago, right? There may have been this sort of also this movement going back to the early uh, 19th century where one, one of the pieces of propaganda was that our elected officials were dependable, reliable, they were reliable elitists, and they were, they're going to tell you the truth. And that was a useful bit of propaganda to a degree. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound too cynical about it, but that was a story and a narrative that many people in the United States accepted true or false, but they accepted it, but it may have done some good because people said, well, I can look to this authority to establish the truth or falseness. Now we have p politicians in this article this morning in the New York Times that shows the number of Republican candidates who deny the results of the 2020 election. The majority of them deny the, re the results. Um, where it's interesting, fake news was, is the claim of the people who've been creating a lot of the fake news, right? So they're not only pr pr um, producing fake news, but they're undermining everyone's faith in any authority to yeah, set yeah, them straight. The, well, the, the term fake news has come to mean something different than it used to, yeah. to mean some years ago. But, uh, but uh, it, it is true. I mean, something that uh, it is not just trusting politicians and trusting governments, but, uh, but even trusting in scientists, actually, uh, uh, I just um, uh, we just published a, a paper in which uh, we we found in an uh, international sample that the willingness to um, to to be vaccinated for for COVID nineteen the the parameter that was mostly related to with one's willingness to be vaccinated 
was trust in scientists. And, that, uh, and when this trust in scientists is not there anymore, then uh, you have people who are thinking, well, why, why should I be vaccinated? I can do my own research. And I think that that's what we're seeing also, that uh, anybody can do their own research, anybody can be an expert. There is no separation between expert opinion and the opinion that basically anybody could have in any field. I think, um, I mean, you know, if there's one thing sort of, you know, uh, political scientists in my field of political science, the one thing that we, I think, have found time and time again is that trust is this sort of core ingredient in making democracy work. And, it, you know, it's trust in institutions, trust in scientists. I would add maybe trust in, you know, like the, the news media, you know, tr trust in some sort of like basic quality sources of information about society. Um, just trust is sort of like the thing that, that makes things run more smoothly. Mm -hmm. um, and when you lose that, um, things can come apart. And so just this conversation is sort of making me ask, you know, uh, on the one hand, trust is good. Like it has a lot of um, beneficial um, uh, properties. But, you know, does trust also come with a cost? So what, um, what are we sort of giving up in order to maintain high levels of trust? I think you suggested one, which is that, you know, if we, there's sort of on one extreme blind trust. So you could blindly trust the government. You could blindly trust um, what the news tells you, right? And we've just seen through history that um, that too can have its pitfalls. And so, um, I, you know, maybe just, I, I, don't, I don't really have an answer to, to this, just to sort of pose it as a dilemma. Um, but I might suggest that there are perhaps different sort of equilibria that, that might work. Right, so you could have like a high trust equilibrium where, um, you know, th there are perhaps like more established uh, gatekeepers. There are sort of more transparent institutions, and sort of people, you know, people sort of understand how that works. And then we're in the process of moving to another equilibrium, and we haven't quite figured out what that looks like. But it's it's a destabilizing destabilizing period. Yeah, and, and I think that perhaps uh, I mean we're we're trying. I, I feel like the conversation that we're having. It's a bit top-down. What can we do to uh, achieve a balance, or what uh, uh, what, uh, what should we do that, uh, so that society um, has uh, a diversity of sources of information, but maybe not too much diversity, or maybe not everybody's uh, opinion should be way the same. Uh, I think that perhaps it's uh, I don't have an answer, but. Uh, if maybe we can. Uh, there are certainly positives in having accessibility, having access to to, mm -hmm. to all of these uh, kinds of um, uh, uh, forms of information, uh, uh, even fake news. But what we are lacking is education, and I think that uh, what we uh, some of the things that we need to do as a society is uh, empower individuals, and that uh, in the educational systems, I, I feel like. Uh, even today, children are not given the tools to develop critical thinking to be able to, to face and, and uh, evaluate all of these uh, alternative and competing sources of information. So that's a serious lack. I want to I wanna build on something that Andy said. Uh, I think it's a healthy thing to be skeptical. Um, we are scientists. That's what we do. That's our job, right? I mean, our job is to be uh, skeptical to a healthy degree, to question knowledge even after it's been established and so on. But what, we've, what we're seeing in recent years is kind of a shift that I see as dangerous from skepticism to cynicism. 
And I think it has a lot to do with this um, erosion um, in trust in institutions of knowledge that actually uh, predates the, the internet and social media. Um, I mean, the, you can choose a lot of random points to kind of start the discussion of it, but I'll, I'll choose for now the early 90s, where, um, where conservative talk, um, uh, talk radio shows like Rush Limbaugh and a few years later, Fox News um, were launching these campaigns uh, against the institution of knowledge, if it's the mainstream media, if it's the scientific community, um, basically a populist argument that elites are lying to you and they're not working for you. Um, I think this is where you start to see the, 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 the beginning of the process that we're in the, in the uh, middle of right now. Um, in, in the last six years or so, I believe that the Trump presidency pushed it even farther by um, not so much spreading specific lies, but challenging the, the epistemology of knowledge. I mean, what does it even mean to know something? Who should we trust and who shouldn't we trust? If you look at uh, Trump's making arguments, for example, and I'm sorry that I'm making it about Trump, but no, it's just a bit too tempting, but um, all, those, all those sayings that people are saying, right? I mean, Trump says, people are saying that the elections were stolen, and now we should accept that as a source of, of knowledge. Um, the whole perception that, that there is no reliable source of knowledge, that everything is subjective and everything is, is, uh, is an attempt to push an agenda of sorts, um, is, I think, kind of the, the cause of where we are right now. Um, in, the, in our first panel this morning, Yorgi uh, Buzaki was mentioning how so many of the facts that we think or we know that we ascribe to, we don't know firsthand. We, we get them from our parents or from other authorities, and we're not, we don't have the time to go and validate every one, every one of them. If um, the world's in a state of chaos and it's making everyone anxious, and I think rightfully it's making many people anxious, one thing to say is, well, one thing to hope for is that you have a great leader who's going to help communicate to you why you need to be, stay calm and carry on. And uh, the other thing that can happen is leaders could say, no, you're right to be anxious. The elites are, are screwing you and there's a conspiracy going on. And, you know, um, and weirdly enough, that conspiracy thinking, I think, puts some of their, their minds partially to, at, at ease. Because I think, well, now I have an explanation for why this is going on, rather than having anything more meaningful. I just want to say one other thing. You know, I'm a physician, and I treat a lot of, I'm a psychiatrist, and um, many patients will come to me and complain about their doctors, their non-psychiatric doctors, you know, their primary care doctor, or their cardiologist, whatever. Can you believe he didn't do this, or say this, or do this test, or she didn't do this, or, and I, um, I'm not, and I am skeptical about the quality that some of these patients may get from time to time. Some of it's excellent, but some of it's not so good. But I always say to these patients, like, listen, if you want to go with the numbers, go toward the doctor and do what they tell you, okay? Because, you know, it's not perfect, but it's better than you staying away and thinking you're going to figure this out on your own, right? So maybe that's a weak argument in, in favor of trusting authority. You say, look, you're better off of just imagining them to be honest and fair to you. It's pretty difficult with what's being advertised these days, right? So. Yeah, and it is true that we need to develop some sort of algorithms for what you should trust and what you shouldn't, because nobody has the time 
all the resources to question everything. And, uh, and it seems that uh, from um, a regular skepticism uh, about uh, particular sets of claims, we have arrived to a situation in which uh, a, everything is up for questioning. Like, uh, and, and it is different to question, I uh, believe, uh, do vaccines cause autism, right? That has been debunked many times. But uh, from there, we shouldn't you know, go on and question whether the Earth uh, may maybe is flat and that uh, there's actually a flat Earth society <laughs> that I don't know um, uh, how serious they are. But, uh, but yeah, I think that uh, it, it, that goes again, uh, I think, to the issue of like uh, the expertise. Uh, do we even rely or do we even uh, trust or recognize that there is an actual thing as a expertise and who gets to be an expert and who gets to have an opinion that should be valued? There's this, um, uh, there was this movement, it's going on now for many years now, I think it's with high frequency trading in the stock market, right, where these transactions are occurring way faster than the human beings can involve. And mm. I mention that because apparently it does have an impact at the speed of these transactions uh, has an impact on the dynamics of the, on the market. So I'm wondering about, because this is a talk after all about coding and digitalization and such, we are getting a, a much faster feedback by these social media outlets mm -hmm. that are tailoring the news items we get in a much higher, at a much higher rate. And I wonder what you all think about that as a, as a phenomenon. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think you're absolutely right that the velocity, the sheer velocity of information uh, is, is increasing. Um, and, you know, I think the most common uh, response to this that I've seen um, is that uh, people be become overwhelmed and just tune out. Uh, so, like, news avoidance is now, like, a, there's, like, a term for it. it. There's a phenomenon of news avoidance. People just turn it off. They pay less attention. Um, the flip side of that is people who actually do, like, want to inject the information into their veins can do so like, you know, at, at, at the most extreme rate that was never before possible. And so you have super engaged people who are like, who, who want to consume like every little bit of content um, and are sort of mainlining uh, like Twitter or TikTok or, or whatever it is. Um, and then you have like everyone else who's sort of not as engaged. And, you know, that creates a whole set of new problems um, for itself because then you have, imagine the feedback you have, um, you know, you have content producers, you have uh, information sources that are now catering, whether they're fully aware of it or not, to these like most hyper-engaged consumers who, whose interests may or may not reflect those of the rest of um, society. So. Yeah, and, and we don't consume all information equally because we are all subjective to cognitive biases, uh, you know, confirmation bias. We hear what we want to hear and there are these uh, piece of information that is supporting my prior view, I'm going to really go deep into it and I'm going to uh, process it in, in, um, in, in, high, in high detail with high uh, focus and that this other piece of information that goes against my views, I'm just going to ignore, keep scrolling. So, and I, and I think that uh, the fact that we have so many sources of information coming at us with high speed and, that, uh, and high amount, this only uh, serves to exacerbate the cognitive biases that we already have because we're overwhelmed all the time and just defaulting to these ingrained ways of thinking. So I think it is harder to change minds today than it used to be. I know in magic, 
one of the things they'll do is they'll get you to look here and you look there and they're, they're getting you to confirm some false belief mm -hmm. quickly, mm -hmm. right? One, two, three, one. And then, then the trick goes, that takes place, right? And that's a little bit of what's going on with this, I think, right? There's, there's all this sort of false, and it's at least yeah. emotionally stirs you up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We actually it. just published a paper about what uh, the psychology and neuroscience of magic tell us about misinformation because uh, there are so many parallels. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think the word emotional is, is key here because when, when, you, when you talk about polarization and the, um, the way the algorithms are maybe pushing us toward um, our own views, it's important to remember that most people don't care about politics or don't understand politics at all. Um, I feel like what we do see right now is a lot of emotionality, a lot of affective polarization, right? I mean, I hate conservatives or I hate liberals. I mean, I, I just can't stand them and what they're and what they represent, um, this kind of sentiment is more uh, driving people um, than, than actual understanding of policy or you know, deep um, ideological uh, views. Most people don't care about politics at all or and understand very little about it. But it seems like more and more we are um, occupied with feeling about the other side. That, that's what I see. I don't think we are more politically sophisticated now than Say 10 years ago. More and more we are. Say again, sorry? You, you said it's not so much that we are actually interested, but we are more and more kind of preoccupied by it. I think we are more and more um, identifying emotionally with, with one side of the, of the cultural divide that we have in this country. Um, and the more we see ourselves as part of, of one group and not the other, the more we seem to hate the other group, uh, more than we, we care about the actual um, policies that they are trying to promote. I think one example of how it's not always just about politics either. I mean, the, the way we might or might not be manipulated. One is, I'm, I'm an infrequent user of Instagram, and I don't use TikTok, but I understand Instagram says, hey, we have to get more of what TikTok's doing, so we're going to show little videos. So they show those ridiculously appealing videos of dogs and cats. That I, and, and the next thing I'm going like, uh, you know, before I'm able to break away, and that's just pl plucking in my emotions, right? There's, there's nothing typically political. Well, it was the one with the, the bulldog with the Trump hat on, but aside from that, it was, no, it's just emotionally engaging. And they're very good at it. Right? It's like Doritos. Right? They, they, you want to have another one and another one, and you keep going. But the other topic, which is, again, not, not really political, maybe it is a little bit, but it's this article today in the paper about the, this new finding about Chaucer. I wanted to mention this earlier today. So uh, Chaucer has been accused by certain uh, literary uh, experts of being, having raped somebody and of, in any way being a misogynist, and a lot of feminist literary uh, scholars have been uh, applying feminist uh, uh, an analysis to Chaucer as the father of English literature, so to speak. Anyway, someone came up with this wonderful, it seemed to me wonderful, and it may not be, because we'd have to be checked, but the, the, the interpretation of this, these legal documents may mean that it wasn't the word, um, uh, it wasn't rape, the, the word rape, rape Anyway, is this a special term they use? They seem to demonstrate that this was basically a, a def the, the the woman was basically defending herself against the accusation she left her previous employer too quickly and was 
uh, was taken to Chaucer's, and both of them were in defense of this lawsuit. Anyway, I'm sorry if this is confusing to you all. My point is it may have changed the worldview of many of these people. So I'm thinking, gee, I wonder how some of these feminist scholars are going to react. And I, and, I, and I was really pleased to see that the ones that were quoted in the New York Times, anyway, had a really good and measured response to it. You know, like, well, this doesn't mean that everything we do about fem feminist scholarship is now invalidated, whether or not this is, you know, whatever this, however this gets determined. But I knew I was thinking to myself, people are invested in a particular view, you know, and they almost resist the idea of changing. Like, they will disbelieve, they're a little bit more skeptical of the new finding, let's say, because they want to hold on to their view of the way things are. And, and I, th I think that's fascinating because, it's, again, it's not exactly a political, a political uh, uh, case. Isn't that rational, though, what you just described? How do you mean? Ah, I mean, like, I've lived, you know, I've lived a number of years, like, I've educated myself about a topic, and I've, like, developed what I consider to be informed views about things. If I encounter a piece of information that, like, maybe challenges some part of my existing belief structure, like, sure, like, uh, you know, I might be skeptical of it because it contradicts, like, it contradicts my worldview, which I've rationally, you know, constructed, of course. Um, but, like, it would be very strange from a rational perspective if I were to encounter one piece of information that contradicts what I think and then so totally change my opinion, right? Um, but wouldn't you take pride in thinking that you're open-minded to changing your point of view? And whether yeah, or not I you mean, changed it, you might say, oh, sure, good. yes. Yeah, yeah, but I think... Um, uh, Open-mindedness doesn't necessarily mean that you are just like, your opinions are being swayed by every piece of information that you encounter. And I think sometimes that's the idea that people have when, when um, the term sort of open-minded is, is used. And I think, I actually think that would be irrational and, and totally unworkable if people went around the world just, just totally changing their views based on the last piece of information that they encountered. This is, I'm caricaturing what you, what yeah, you just said, yeah. but um, we have people here with more expertise who could probably speak to, to what I'm trying to say. But, uh, I guess, you know, often these kinds of patterns where people say, like, oh, you're resisting this information. Well, I, yeah, I mean, of course people are resisting information that, like, challenges their worldview. Like, why would we expect anything otherwise? Scientists do that all the time. I guess I'm thinking there's a value in, a, in, in believing in your um, intellectual uh, indifference to the outcome. I'm not saying you are going to do that. You, yeah. You're a human being, and that's natural. <laughs> it is natural. But if you say about people, oh, it's only, only natural, you're going to be in a camp. Mm -hmm. that's, your, that's the camp you're in. And if you say, well, there's a real value in ascribing to some impartiality. Right? And I think that we've lost a little bit of that. That there's, uh, Trump made some comments some time ago that, oh, of course someone made that decision because they're a Democratic judge. And um, mm. Justice Roberts said, no, there aren't Democratic judges and Republican judges. Now, I think this is fascinating because I, I, I have to say I don't know anyone in my circle who, and most of those people do not like Trump whatsoever. I think they all go, yeah, he's right. <laughs> okay. Now, see, to me, that comment of Roberts was prescriptive, not so much descriptive. Like, it's sort of, yes, we should, we should be able to believe in the indifference of our jurists because that's, that's really the ideal and you say, well, in the real world, it doesn't work that way. You're being a fool. You're being naive. But you see, instead of saying, oh, good for you for supporting the idea of impartiality, you're, you're sort of looked at like you're some kind of naive, some naive, right? I think that's unfortunate. I mean, why not, why not believe in impartiality as a 
as an ideal? Well, I think as long as it's clear that this is aspirational rather than descriptive. Mm -hmm. right? No, I think impartiality is good, but it depends on what it is about. There are certain things you can't be impartial about. So if they told you the best treatment for depression is to hang yourself, you can't be you can't be impartial about such a thing. But I think part of the issue is to be somebody, somebody said that's skeptical and have a, a certain more balanced view is that it helps with anxiety. You can see that in your office if you have a couple and one of them doesn't trust the other one, the lack of trust becomes a major preoccupation going around and around. Next thing you know, they're checking each other's cell phones, they're doing this. So trust is very important, and I think what's happening with all this misinformation is that you end up diminishing people's trust, and therefore you get the kind of agitation that we've seen, especially in this country a couple of years ago where everybody is so agitated, you have patients who are waking up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. I say patients because that's my source of information, but I'm sure some of my friends were doing that to check the news. And uh, so that kind of thing is uh, psychologically damaging. So there is a limit to how much uh, misinformation can actually uh, affect people's mental health, and I think it does, and to develop skepticism about all the information is a positive look. Yeah. And I think that you're both getting on something important in terms of, you mentioned something about uh, presenting a balanced view. And, and what is a balanced view? Because uh, hanging yourself is not a good treatment for depression and you shouldn't be given the same way as, uh, I don't know, uh, some uh, actual forms of, of therapy. Um, but, uh, but this is something that, um, uh, the, the news uh, media has struggled with and that uh, uh, in leading to the, to the Trump election, uh, it used to be in a, in a newspaper reporting that you present two sides of an issue and that's supposed to be balanced. But uh, I think that uh, reporters today, they, they have come, they're still struggling with this, but they're coming to the realization that just giving equal equal time and equal uh, word count to two issues, that's not necessarily a balanced view. No. Or if you're talking about uh, having a, I don't know, a TV, a TV show with interviews about, a, or a, a, just a panel about uh, climate, ch climate change, uh, you know, and you have a climate scientist and a climate denier, that's not a balanced view because in one case you have the exception view of a, of a specific issue, and in the other case you have somebody who represents, uh, I don't know, thousands of climate scientists, so it's, it's not, that's not balanced, that would be imbalanced, but uh, I do not think that uh, we have arrived to the right formula for how to present different sides of an issue with appropriate weights. Well, you, Tim, you had mentioned uh, the cynicism before, and you know, for me, the issue of cynicism, as I was saying in my thesis just a moment ago, that if people are considered to be somehow stupid or naive to be open to some, you know, consensus opinion or some authority, 
and or if they're made fun of for think or believing in impartiality, that doesn't breed uh, that doesn't breed trust. It just won't. You're you're wrong for being for having any trust in in an impartial decision. You're just a fool. And I, I'm I'm afraid that's a meme in our society right now. And it's it's keeping us away from forming establishing uh, some kind of legitimate uh, sources of authority for many of these topics. And and there seems to be uh, a change in how we react to evidence. I think evidence is maybe a key word here. Um, on one hand, we have uh, more and more segments of the population who just reject evidence as irrelevant. Um, and on the other, let us take for example, you know what the uh, the um, January six hearings, right now. There is a, I think, kind of a feeling that no matter how much evidence the committee will accumulate, uh, some people will not be persuaded by it, right? Maybe because they distrust the source of the evidence, or maybe because they just don't, it doesn't change their mind. At the same time, where evidence is losing its meaning for many people, you now have uh, a new kind of um, um, brand of conspiracism that doesn't rely on any evidence at all. I mean, I, take, the, take the QAnon conspiracy, for example. Uh, people are willing to believe in, in outrageous arguments based on very little. Uh, it's, it's different even from the, the conspiracy theories of, let's say, 2001, where truthers around the 9-11 attacks were trying to collect every bit of information they could. You know, they would try to... I mean, it was, of course, inaccurate and wrong, but at least it was an attempt to kind of find some information that can support their side. Mm -hmm. I remember all the, you know, the attempts to calculate the, the heat levels of the metal and whatnot. These days, the new conspiracies are just arguments being thrown around. Um, people are willing to at least spread them without any support whatsoever. Yeah, and at the same time, they're willing to reject uh, the scientific community that, that is, is working around... Um, around facts and evidence. Right. And I think that uh, part of the problem, and, and one of the reasons, not necessarily the main reason, but one of the reasons that we don't have trust and that misinformation continues unimpeded is that we, we have a lack of accountability. I don't think that we can have trust without accountability. And that uh, I think that perhaps there are some, uh, uh, there's, there's, um, there's a sea change or the beginnings of a sea change. I mean, we just... Uh, had the uh, Alex Jones uh, trial for spreading this uh, misinformation with the with the with the families of the uh, Sandy Sandy Hook uh, victims, um, but uh, but for for a very long time, for over a decade, he was able to spread this misinformation and uh, making a lot of money out of it without without any consequence. I mean, just to throw out one other ingredient in this. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I thought your take on the sort of um, objectivity and you know the extent to which sort of whether something is truly objective, say in journalism, has been challenged. Um, you know, I, I think the you know what's going on, part of what's going on here is that um, we have claims by kind of established players, so like journalists, um, like judges, uh, who are you know they're they're claiming some sort of objectivity or neutrality. Um, but people, you know, have, they're taking some other evidence, like some, whether it's their experience or they're feeling that there's no accountability or being able to point to outcomes that contradict this, this um, assertion of objectivity. And they're saying, 
what you're saying isn't true, or you know, I don't believe what you're telling us because we have this other evidence that you know, you're obviously biased towards this outcome. And it's easier than ever to obtain that independent evidence um, uh, that at least challenges these traditional claims to objectivity and, and lack of bias. And you know, one thing that's making that easier is transparency, or just you know, the ability to actually collect your own, your own data and make that available for other people. Traditionally, you know, most information that people would use to make these kinds of assessments was channeled through these kinds of gatekeepers. Um, but, but today, you know, whether it's through um, literally laws that allow people to um, just request documents from, from government authorities or social media, which can take very obscure pieces of information and suddenly put them in before millions of people, um, suddenly um, you know, there is other evidence that people can use to challenge these claims to authority, which are based on... Um, you know, neutrality or, or objectivity. And um, that can't withstand that kind of scrutiny, um, it, you know, uh, if people are willing to believe that, um, that the claims are not fully, fully based on, um, yeah, like on a solid foundation. Um, some of the efforts have been to try to police or regulate the messages in social media, and then that, that's a fraud, to some degree fraud, yeah. right? I, I think people don't understand how unregulated social media is. Um, part of it is intentional. I mean, we decided to put social media under Section 230, which means that we treat them as a technology um, industry and not a media industry, right? Um, I don't think people understand how arbitrary the process of moderating information on social media is. It's basically still... Uh, you know, um, based on, on those companies making um, decisions based on their, on their financial kind of benefits, um, they, can, they are not legally bound to remove misinformation. There are no clear rules about what's considered misinformation or not. Uh, this is the Wild West of, of information. You know, Why is misinformation bothering us more now? Because we have more access to it? Because what? Sorry? Because we have more of it or more access to misinformation, why are we so bothered about it? I mean, we knew it was always there. I, I think that what's new about misinformation in the digital era is that we, we are uh, communicating now in an environment that prioritizes um, the algorithms that you talked about earlier. Uh, I think for a long time we were worried that the algorithms are pushing us toward information we already believe in. So there was a lot of discussion of filter bubbles and echo chambers and all those um, ideas. But I think these days it seems more um, evident that the environment that we communicate in prioritizes engagement. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a financial decision. The, the social media companies like Facebook and TikTok and YouTube are free, meaning they need to make money somehow. And they do that by keeping us engaged for as long as possible, collecting our data uh, and tailoring advertisements to us, right? In order to do that, they need to give us information that, that's going to keep us interested. <coughs> Misinformation just fits the bill better than facts. Um, I, I think the, the information environment that we are working in and almost living in these days just prioritizes misinformation more than before, more than the mass media or mainstream media um, era that was more bound to, to some objective, uh, norms of objectivity. And something that I think should bother us is uh, 
about the access and vulnerability that young people have to misinformation. This, this is no. And uh, I have uh, three children, they're 11, 12, and 15. And I noticed, especially during the pandemic, um, uh, during Zoom school, and, uh, and my two oldest kids, they were a couple of years older at the time, I guess uh, 13 and, and 11. And, uh, and I, I, I learned a, a little bit too late and that uh, we've done our best to remedy it. But they have been subjected to a vast amount of misinformation online and we had a number of conversations and uh, uh, I had not even been aware of this and that, uh, you know, even with misinformation being kind of my, my field in a sense. But, uh, but this was uh, basically happening uh, in front of me and I wasn't seeing it. And, and young people, they have access, but they don't have the tools. It's difficult to have the tools as, uh, even as, informing, as, as informed adults. But in uh, some of this, this misinformation is specifically targeting children and, and young people. And uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a big problem and it's a new problem. Well, if it's true that the, it's, it's way less regulated than ever in the past, would that mean, how would it be regulated now? Is that something you're in favor of? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, gosh, I mean, if you're Someone talking, has to answer the I mean, if you're talking about things that are targeted to children, I mean, that seems like a pretty ripe area for regulation. Okay, that seems like, hard. yeah, um, that, that seems like that's a pretty, pretty uncontroversial statement. Um, so let's start there. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, are we skipping to reg are we going to regulation now? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I was, I, I was, I, I, I was interested in actually keying off something else that you said. So, I mean, you've been talking a little bit about sort of learning, basically like training and teaching people how to basically sift through um, the, the information that they encounter. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, trying to improve educational efforts. Um, both you know, in children and, and even later in life. Um, so I've been very interested, for example, in things like um, digital media literacy, you know, trying to come up with ways of improving people's digital literacy skills um, as a potential solution for um, people's susceptibility to misinformation. Um, and so I'm curious if you've like, you know, ever kind of thought about that or if you've encountered these kinds of um, issues, if you are optimistic about these kinds of approaches for I'm helping to, to solve this problem. Well, uh, optimistic. Um, I don't think this is the only solution, but I think it's an integral part mm -hmm. of the of the solution. And uh, because um, I mean, to 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 be able to sift through all of this information and uh, decide what to keep, what to uh, discard you first need to be aware of your own vulnerabilities. You have to be aware that there are all of these various sources of information. I think also there's a lack of awareness of our own just um, neurological susceptibilities as uh, human beings with the nervous systems that we have, how we can fall prey to all sorts of perceptual cognitive biases. Mm -hmm. I don't think that this is really well understood or, or accepted, you think, okay, I'm gonna be able to, uh, I know that there is uh, misinformation out there, but I know myself, I know that I can make a good decision and you can convince yourself that you can be a good judge, and, uh, but fundamentally you have to realize that you have to keep questioning yourself because you are vulnerable in ways that are not going to be apparent to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I, I want to go back to regulation for a second. It's a really tough topic, and, and all of us are struggling to, to answer those questions. Uh, I think there are two parts or two components that we need to consider. Uh, first is what do we regulate? Um, and the second is who, who is supposed to do that? So the first one is hard. I mean, both of them are hard. The, but the first one is really, really hard because the amount of misinformation right now is so big that we cannot regulate all of it. Right? So we need to make a decision on where to, to draw the line in the sand. For me, for example, I mean, it's, it's, it's still vague, but my kind of borderline will be where people are, people's lives or, or well-being are put at risk, right? So maybe we wouldn't regulate any mis, uh, misstated argument on the internet, but if something is, for example, a conspiracy is putting a complete, uh, a full um, um, uh, racial group at risk, for example, maybe that's the place where you want to intervene. So first of all, we need to decide what to regulate and what not. I mean, what kind of lies to take down and what not. The second problem, of course, is who's going to do it? Um, and, and both options are pretty bad. Uh, one option is to let the government do that. And we know that in the past, governments had abused this power. Um, the Chinese government, for example, right now, is regulating TikTok in a way that removes, uh, let's say, information that's favorable to the Hong Kong and uh, Taiwanese side, right? Um, we can think of other examples from the history when, when governments use their power to regulate information uh, to detrimental effects. The other option is to let the companies themselves do that, and, and that, once again, is problematic. Do we trust Twitter to decide what's truth and what's false? Do we trust YouTube to be the arbitrators of truth? The answer is, of course not. They are, um, first and foremost, business people. Their concern is with the bottom line um, of their companies, and they are not, um, they don't have a motivation, really, to keep the information environment clean. Now, between these two, if I had to choose, I would still go with the government, because at least the government is being elected by the people. I mean, nobody elected Mark Zuckerberg to have so much power over information. Politicians are not perfect, governments are not perfect, but at least, they, uh, at least we have, so, as citizens, we have some uh, authority uh, over, over selecting them or, or you know, um, monitoring their behaviors. Um, so not, no solution is perfect, but, um, but I think we need to start talking about governmental regulation. It happens in other countries. I mean, in the United States, it sounds like, uh, like a big deal to ask the government to interfere with information, but take Germany or Austria, for example, uh, where it is illegal to, let's say, deny the Holocaust, right? I mean, there are laws in place. Um, and again, how do you decide what to make into a law where something is becoming an existential threat to, to people's uh, safety, right? So maybe it's time to start seriously thinking about regulation. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't actually necessarily, I didn't want you to get the idea that I was in favor of regulation, although I know there aren't that many uh, obvious solutions to it. I, I also agree with the idea of educating people more uh, to try to become more skeptical. I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit um, pessimistic about educating people, basically because of what your original premise is, which is we're really prone to these sorts of uh, uh, tr the trickery we just are as human beings, you know. Um, and then there's this sort of general idea that there's a, you know, it's interesting that there's so much skepticism about truth, 
started on the left, right? There was a lot of critics of, of skepticism and, and, uh, and the relativism of truth started on the left, and then it's sort of really been appropriated by the right now. Um, and so we have both camps uh, have become relativist, which is, <laughs> which is difficult, right? Because people say, well, I don't think the government on one hand should be the ones who decide what's true or what's not true. And then the other people say, um, we should be free to say whatever we want. We want the First Amendment rights. I mean, everything's turned upside down. Um, but maybe the idea might be also to, you know, first of all, I think when folks say, well, for example, example Holocaust denying is illegal in Germany, um, I, I, would, I don't know anything about their legal system around that. But I imagine if you've been cited for claiming the Holocaust wasn't real, you might have some ways to address that legally to try to, no, I didn't do it, or it was a work of art, or whatever, you know, something of that nature. And I would think maybe that'd be something that could happen here. The other is you can get together these businesses and say, look, you have to come together with, to some consensus of what's legitimate. You know, let the, let the companies do it as a group, and uh, I'll let them know that otherwise it's going to be, a, uh, the government's going to step in. Um, it's interesting that a lot of, I mean, you were mentioning uh, where the groups being oppressed because of uh, false information. I think Alex Jones was a good example, but one of the things that came up with Alex Jones, and I know we've all heard about this in other contexts, is that uh, there are people getting threatening phone calls, and, and, and you could imagine that that's something you could take, keep a record of, and, and it, it, it could be something used as a trigger point for there's, there's something has to be done about this. This is leading to a lot of threats. I don't know if what you all think of that as a possible. Yeah, I mean, that's something that would probably be illegal, you know, offline with a telephone. So why would that be legal if you're doing it through Twitter or through, through Facebook? Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say I thought, I thought the way you framed that was, was very, very good. Um, I, per, you know, personally, in terms of regulation, I feel like we actually had a pretty good workable solution for a while. Uh, this, this Section 230 idea, which is we're going to let there be a flourishing of different platforms. They can all figure out their rules, and people can sort of go to the platform whose rules that they like. Problem is, that was not designed for a world in which we have like two huge, you know, two or three huge platforms that have come to somehow dominate our kind of public sphere, or that's what, that's what it seems like anyway. Um, it was for a world in which there was like AOL and CompuServe and all these little dial-up services and the stakes just don't seem so high. Um, and so, you know, the question to me is, is there a way to sort of adapt this kind of like middle, middle path um, to our present day reality, which just does not reflect um, the reality in which the original regulations were drawn. So, I did included. I'll just say yeah. the, the, yeah. the idea behind Section 230 was that if you're a technology company that produces, let's say, a phone, you can't be held responsible for what people say on the phone, right? But with Facebook and Twitter, that's not the case anymore. Their algorithms are determining which information will be more prominent, which which information will be more obscured, right? Meaning they are beginning to hold, well not beginning, they are holding editorial role over what's being said on their platforms and maybe they're not a technology company anymore. Maybe they are media companies at this point and if they are we need to regulate them just like we did for cable TV and newspapers and, and all the media that came before. Yeah, I think the question really does come down to the extent to which there is some sort of editorial discretion. Um, it's like literally, this is literally what some of the court cases now are, are hinging on. Um, so it actually isn't the case that there aren't regulations or laws. There actually are regulations or laws. They're going to be made by one actor or another, whether it's a court, right, or 
um, or, or some sort of de facto rule by a company. And so I think, I think what we should try to you know, figure out is whether the, the public can sort of play a role in, um, in you know, determining what the rules are going to look like, because the rules are going to be set uh, one way or another. I had um, included the uh, reference to NFTs, which are a little bit, have receded a little bit in, uh, the, uh, in the media coverage of late, but I, I saw it as a being an effort, I mentioned this to you earlier, Rotem, as like an effort to reestablish uh, authenticity in some way, because these are ways in which you know, these things are supposedly uh, um, indelible and uh, not open to dispute. Um, and similarly, Bitcoin, which are, have a relationship in the cryptocurrencies, the idea that, okay, well, we don't want to trust the Fed anymore with the way our money is being managed. We're going to find this sort of democratized way of making sure money is, uh, transactions are, are uh, on a ledger that's indelible. How quickly that sort of, what do you think about the fact that how quickly this is sort of, it was like a, a little bit of a fad and it seems to be, I don't know if it's going to recede forever, but it has receded a little bit. One thing that interests me about NFTs um, is that we, we perceive them as less authentic, as you said, than, than money. But um, for me, it's, it's kind of ironic because money was always fictional. I mean, right? I mean, what is money? Uh, what does it mean that I give you a piece of green paper that, that, that has no value at all? You cannot trust. wear it. You cannot trust, turn right? it into a tent or anything, you know? It depends on trust, doesn't it? It depends on trust, right. I mean, the only reason money works is that I can give you this piece of paper and, and both of us know that you can take this piece of paper to H&M and buy the shirt with it, right? Um, I think the NFTs are, are just another iteration of, of the same old idea of, of imagining a financial system uh, and, and making up rules uh, to play by. But yeah, it seems like these days it's kind of collapsing, I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert on NFTs, but yeah. it, seems, it seems that the... Uh, the NFTs, there is no... There is no country behind the NFT. It's uh, between the buyer and the seller. But with the, let's say, dollar, you have the United States Treasury guaranteeing that. What's guaranteeing the NFTs? What's just trust in the other or in the market? You know, in a way, it connects to the previous point. Um, you started talking a little bit about kind of libertarian models of communication. Yeah. Uh, what if we just let people be and, and hope that they're going to do the, the best with it? Uh, we seem to put a lot of hopes into that. And, and it's true for NFTs, but it's also true for social media and, and discussion. Um, we built this um, utopian perception of, of media environments like the internet, where if we just let people be themselves, if we don't tell them what to you know, what to read or what to think or what to say, the best content will always prevail. And, and it doesn't seem to hold water. When, it comes, when, when push comes to shove, uh, it seems like we're not always looking for the best content. We're not always trying to uh, spread the most accurate information. Um, so, so it's nice to kind of dream about the libertarian world where you can just leave people to their own devices and they're going to do the best. It doesn't seem to work. Right. Do you think this concern about misinformation is going to diminish over the years since there's so much of it and people will then start thinking, well, I'm reading all this, but it's misinformation, so that they develop a sense of uh, 
skepticism of a degree that unless they find real evidence in something, they just dismiss it. I mean, I think arguably it's already diminishing. I think it's being replaced with other, um, other concerns. Um, so, for example, I mean, you know, you hear a lot about um, other kinds of um, consequences of social media, like, um, you know, harassment, hate speech, um, even things like incivility, things that um, just also make things unpleasant, have a, a lot of harmful effects, but don't necessarily hinge on the question of whether something is factually accurate or not. Um, and so I guess my prediction would be, um, we'll be here, you know, the next time that there's a new big technological shift in mass communication um, that, you know, that raises worries about um, whether people will be manipulated in some way, we'll hear again about misinformation. Um, but now I think the conversation has sort of um, moved on a little bit and um, misinformation is, uh, I think, a potential harmful effect of social media, but there are lots of others. And um, I, I think, it's perhaps healthy that we, you know, we're kind of making some room for some of these other things as well. Um, and, I, and I think it will be unlikely that um, people will just anything that I read, anything that I see um, on on the web, I'm, I'm going to distrust. I think it's uh, it's going to keep uh, it's being curated. Currently, it's going to be even more so. That's uh, it links to the polarization issue. But uh, I think that. Uh, people will always have some particular sources of information that they trust implicitly and they'll be seeking that kind of content that they are already predisposed to trust. So, so I don't think that there will be like a widespread um, skepticism about uh, any sort of information, but uh, perhaps more polarization even. So I think um, the, the idea behind um, NFTs and cryptocurrencies was an effort to sort of codify a form of authenticity and it fails. It just fails because what people need is more trust. And you, you, know, you like to think, well, if I, if, I, if I codify it and I make it absolutely uh, unassailable, yes or no, that, that's not replacing trust between human beings. It's really an interesting, right? I mean, That is be, an interesting yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that that's potentially a cautionary tale, but um, I'm not sure. Um, I guess I don't know if that's universally the case, right? So here we have a situation, um, you know, in kind of financial markets, right? So maybe like we really need trust, <laughs> um, you know, to sustain like a healthy, uh, healthy market. Um, uh, but I see some more things going on with our, our previous discussion about um, how do you know which sources of information to trust? Um, can we replace that kind of trust with authenticity? Well, I think that's happening too, right? Um, if you look at um, where, I mean, when I just talk to my students, you know, um, they don't even think about information in terms of trust. Um, they think about influencers that they follow. You know, they, um, they think about, um, you know, broadcasters um, who, um, who they find, like, authentic or real. So people are already using authenticity as a sort of um, a metric for where they should get information. Um, and so it is a question to me yeah. as to whether that sort of replacing trust with authenticity. But is, is that cause or effect? Like, do you trust uh, some influencer because they're authentic or they seem authentic because you trust yeah, them? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess like one, one way that you could think about this, I don't know if this is accurate, but you know, as trust has sort of declined across the board in a number of spaces, 
people still need some, they, they need yeah. something that can just simply solve the problem yeah. of like, yeah, yeah. where do I turn people to? People will always find shortcuts. Yeah. yeah, what shortcuts do I use? And um, maybe, you know, maybe I'm just using these words interchangeably or something, but it's like there is something about the authenticity of the messenger now that um, that seems different than this mm -hmm. kind of traditional notion yeah. of trust. But, but the, I, apparent, I, I, the apparent authenticity. Apparent, yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm all in favor of authenticity and I agree with everything you said. I'm just saying that thinking you're going to find it by having it digitalized, that the authenticity yeah. is going to be vouchsafed by the by the digital, the, the code is it's not going to happen. If Bitcoin yeah. and other cryptocurrencies ever take off, it's not going to be because they have uh, because of the tech, their blockchain technology, it's going to be because people start to put trust into it. Right? Right. It's not going to be because of the technology, is, is what I'm saying. Well, it's like something that inherently can't be hard-coded. It's like, well, if, like, at the point where you have to sign a contract with someone, it's like, well, you're not relying on trust anymore. Like, That's you right. know, right? So. That's exactly right. Well, should we open up the, the floor to some questions? Do anyone, does anyone here have any questions? Why don't you come over here? No, please, because one of them picked up on the mic. So I'm curious, with so many different views of reality and everything you guys have been talking about, how will history be written about our time? Will it be in parallel tracks? Will there be a, a history that is true history of what was real? What we, was fact? What we, was fact-based? We never had true history. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. maybe, but it seems like it's more at risk now than possibly it's been before. I mean, there's a, there's a book by Vargas Llosa that came out last year about the events in uh, Guatemala and the U.S. role in uh, whatever it was that happened in Guatemala. Well, that only... Uh, is something that came up in a more consistent and coherent way with Vargas Llosa's book. So where is, what is the accurate history of what happened in uh, Guatemala until that point? No, I know it's a problem. History is written through the eyes of these But this seems even more fraught with conflict about what really did happen. I think, um, I'm not that I'm an historian, but um, I have a little bit more faith there's going to be a, a consensus that will be built over time. Right now, history already, historians disagree about you know, the way things went and they reinterpret parts of history still to this day and not always in a highly polarized Democrat versus Republican way, but just because there are honest disagreements among historians about how things go. I mentioned this story about Chaucer today. It's a good example and that may be debated. Um, no, I think among academic historians, that, that's it, there, there will be enough of a consensus uh, about what's... Yeah. What, uh, Actually, I, I, am, I am more uh, optimistic about the future historians than I am about uh, what's happening today. Because I, I do think that uh, the, the access to um, information and to spreading information it's uh, there, there are so many people today, like anybody has a voice, and uh, so future historians will have access not just to established uh, experts, governments, reporters, but uh, it, we don't know how the everyday person used to think about in the, in the Middle Ages. They didn't have a voice that we have been able to recover today. So I think that 
future historians will have to sift through content, but they will have a lot more to work with than we have today about era's past. But that itself is going to pose, um, I mean, completely agree with what's been said, but that itself is going to pose a huge challenge. Yes. Like, it's going to be this challenge of abundance versus, right? Yes. Uh, but as a scientist, that's a good yeah. thing, to have too much data. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. But just as like a practical matter, you know, I've tried to reconstruct what people have said on Twitter like last week. And mm. you should try it sometime. It's really hard because um, people are responding to, like, they're responding to other people uh, directly and indirectly. People are making sort of vague, like, uh, you know, vague references to things um, that are not always obvious after the fact. Um, you know, reconstructing the context, I think, is going to be increasingly difficult um, because it's told, like, it's told through, um, like, like, memes and references that are constantly evolving. And it's going to be like trying to decipher, like, hier hieroglyphics in a yeah, way. Yeah, perhaps um, so. And, uh, and will that information be preserved in forms that are accessible? Well, well yeah, I mean, just because it's yeah. digital doesn't mean it doesn't decay. Exactly. So, um, well, hopefully there'll be people who are, you know, academics who are motivated to do that uh, work on the hieroglyphics. <laughs> I, I like to think there is. You know, a lot of people have written about history, uh, what, you know, books about historical pro uh, uh, developments are not always exactly historians either. And we could think of some ec economists who've written pretty divergent views, Hayek and Keynes, and pretty divergent views about how history's gone, economic history, but also general history, and that we've survived with that, you know, so I, I'm, I'm reasonably hopeful about that. Anybody else? Oh, please step up to the mic. Okay, so um, since we have, since we have some um, political scientists here, the, f the first thing I want to ask, um, this concept, it's a little tangential, but it comes back, uh, political science. Um, my understanding of science is you observe the world, you make theories, you test those theories through experiment, and then you see if your theories were correct. Now, if we want to guide this in the context of today's topic, um, uh, misinformation and, um, and uh, algorithms, mm -hmm. would a political scientist be able to conduct an experiment on this topic and make predictions and theories? And is, it, is that something they would do? Or even more generally, would do political scientists just make predictions but don't run experiments? Can you comment on that a little bit? Uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, as sort of social scientists, um, we want to be able to make and test hypotheses. Um, which often means you're testing predictions. Um, so certainly, you know, speaking for myself and my own research, I'm like everything that I try to do fits the framework that you just described. When you're talking about misinformation, things become difficult because there are ethical issues involved. So you know, if I could think of the ideal experiment that I would like to run, um, it would probably, you know, it would involve like it, you know exposing people to a ton of misinformation, then see what happens. Well, that's not that doesn't seem ethical to me, right? And so you get I can't rats. run that. You get I, rats, right? Sorry? Oh, you yeah, get rats. rats. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you can do it on rats. Um, and so uh, part of the sort of ch the, ch the creative challenge uh, of doing this kind of research is trying to, trying to you know, explore ways of studying these questions in ways that don't require you to be a mad, a mad scientist, basically. And some of that involves natural experiments. So you know, uh, have platforms changed the way that they've operated? And so does this speak to this particular you know, hypothesis about, say, the effects of misinformation? Um, 
The other thing is that a lot of the most interesting research that's happening right now, both by political scientists, but also people in uh, psychology and other fields um, and, and, and communication is um, trying to test um, the effectiveness of different kinds of solutions for misinformation. So take it as a given. What can we do um, to sort of reduce people's belief in misinformation in ways that you know, don't infringe on other kinds of values like uh, free expression? Um, so I think this is all a very active um, area of, of research, but I agree that sort of we want to take the sort of scientific uh, empiricist path to, to understanding these questions. Experiments with uh, well, uh, not on um, uh, certain sources of misinformation. We actually we do uh, we have done a number of experiments with uh, misdirection, as you might have in a, in a magic show. We actually study magic tricks directly as uh, to investigate uh, various kinds of cognitive biases. So so yeah, you 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 can do. These, uh, these kinds of things. It's, uh, it's uh, a bit less of an ethical concern where you're investigating magic tricks, but you can get that uh, similar kinds of issues. I'll just add, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll just add that, um, first of all, there ain't one approach to, to scientific inquiry of, of political science. Uh, both Andy and me are more quantitative and, and I guess, uh, post-positivistic in, in nature, but some people don't accept that as the only way to understand the world. Uh, in the area of misinformation specifically, I think that, that um, in both your field of political science and in my field of communication, we are getting very good at building micro theories of, of misinformation, uh, which can be tested experimentally in, in the lab or in controlled environments. What we are not able to do is, is to use scientific methods to answer those big questions. Like, how does misinformation influence our society? That's something you cannot put into a, a lab, or, or you cannot create two societies that are equal on everything, um, except for the presence of misinformation. So I think we're spending a lot of our time on the micro level of just mm -hmm. understanding the psychological processes. Uh, and in that regard, we are taking a very, uh, an approach that's very similar to the, the hard sciences, as much as possible within the limitations of, of humans as such. Well, first of all, thank you for this wonderful discussion. And um, a few years ago, uh, a study uh, made uh, at the MIT Media Lab, the question was, uh, do fake news spread faster and uh, uh, more than uh, um, real news or truthful news? And the answer was yes. Uh, so the problem is why? And uh, one may think, well, because of bots and new technology that can multiply the diffusion. But the result of the study uh, 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 tell uh, uh, something different. Apparently, uh, fake news spread faster uh, because of human beings, mm -hmm. because of the emotional reaction they, they uh, evoke. Uh, so my question is, when we are discussing the impact of new technologies, uh, the temptation to be apocalyptic uh, uh, is already at hand, but uh, shouldn't we go back to the human factor? Because as you said, we are basically the same. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, confirmation bias, you said that, uh, uh, reassurance, uh, uh, conformism, uh, uh, 
the feeling of being part of a, a community of people who share the same belief are always the same. So I think the human factor probably has to be more investigated than interface. There's too much emphasis. Don't you think there's too much emphasis on the technology? Thank you. Um, I, I do think that uh, emotions are uh, a critical uh, component that we, we know from a neuroscientific perspective and, that, uh, and in studies of attention that emotions prioritize attention. That's actually uh, a lot of the reasons that uh, magicians take advantage of this. Magicians actually make us laugh at critical points where they need to misdirect us. So, uh, so you can use emotion almost uh, surgically in a magic show uh, also in, uh, in, in social media and, uh, and in the spread of fake news. And we, we used to think, I mean, uh, many years ago, the thinking uh, in uh, science communication was that, uh, well, you need to put out the correct information out there and you need to give more detail and you need to communicate it more. <laughs> and so people are going to extract the right conclusion. It's just they are arriving to the wrong conclusion because they don't have all the information. So let's give more information, let's make it more accessible. That doesn't fix the problem because you're ignoring the emotional component. I, can, I, can I add something? Uh, I thought, yeah, I thought that was a great question too. Um, I, I also, you know, as a social scientist too, I think you know, humans are always going to be at the center of what I think is important. Um, but as a political scientist, I think you know, human behavior is structured by institutions. Um, and so kind of another way of saying that, um, uh, how, how that applies to this topic is that I think um, different social media platforms um, have different affordances or different features which can bring out or suppress tendencies that exist in humans. And so that's the thing that's really important, right? There's nothing inherent to, um, I think there's nothing inherent to like social media like in the abstract that means that it's going to incentivize um, you know, engagement with misinformation. Um, but it is baked into some platforms today and that the way that they set up the incentives within the platform. And so I think that redesigning um, social media, um, how they're designed, the kinds of um, behaviors that they facilitate for people, the kinds of um, behavior that they encourage from people is something that we should be thinking very seriously about. Because, yeah, it's true, like humans have a tendency to think of ourselves as part of a group. Um, but that can, be, that can be emphasized or de-emphasized. Um, and you know what the group is, uh, right? That's not hardwired either. And so um, these are things that can be brought out through features of social media, including things like algorithms um, or, or not. There's, a, a, uh, there's been a movement I know, and I don't know much about it, but I do know that some groups, organizations, will have people go out together and live, camp out, or solve problems. Yeah. Or, right? And the whole idea is here, they're identifying the cave, with each other. Yeah, but they're cooperating yeah. with each other towards certain <laughs> goals which is different just saying, well, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative, right? And they, they're actually targeting some goals, and that seems to uh, foster a little bit more of a, a sense of community. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, thank you very much for a very stimulating discussion. I cannot help but remember that there was a time in uh, human history where uh, the heliocentric system was considered misinformation. So, and, 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 the, and the geocentric system was considered, you know, to be the truth. So, and people were actually tried, you know, they were put on the, on the fire for challenging the so-called truth by spreading misinformation. Okay, so, uh, so my question is, is there such a thing as 
information, because if there is misinformation, it means that the information is what's true and the misinformation is what's wrong. Now, is there such thing as information? And even if there is, what's wrong with challenging it? And uh, the, so the, the last thing I'm going to say is, is that in, is science is very limited in what objective, let's say, truth uh, 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 is. Like physics, I mean, uh, 90, more than 95% of uh, medical, biomedical published uh, research, which we consider science, is, is not, um, uh, it, it cannot be uh, replicated. Mm -hmm. That tells you how hard establishing what information is, at least in the scientific context, where you can have objective methodology, let alone in the social sciences. That's what, what the problem is. So should we err on the side of allowing misinformation because that's the, that makes the dialectic process which allows us to filter and synthesize and refuse and accept. That should we allow misinformation? Should we err on the side of allowing misinformation? Or should we err on the side of imposing quote-unquote information which actually may turn out in, in maybe uh, the next decade or the next uh, century to be false? Thank you. Uh, my, my feeling, I think that these are, um, uh, I think that there are different issues at play here, and that uh, I think one issue pertains to uh, the science enterprise itself, and that uh, it is true that we do have a replicability um, a crisis or problem uh, more in some areas than in others, but uh, and and I think that there's a there are fundamental problems with the structure of science, how it's done this day, the kinds of science that gets incentivized, the pressure to publish. Um, there, there, there are a lot of problematic issues, and, uh, and, and certainly uh, sometimes it's, uh, we're, we're playing it a bit too, too safe in the, in the sense of the, uh, the, the research that gets uh, resources to, to be performed. Um, I think that's a different problem from uh, misinformation itself, and that uh, uh, in the spread of misinformation, I think that's uh, the, uh, by individuals, not uh, necessarily scientists, I think that's a different domain from uh, is science done the best way it could be done. Um, so, so, so to me, those are those are different those are different issues and um, uh, yes in, in in terms of the, the the other thing I think that's important to keep in mind in terms of the science because uh, it, it was mentioned something about truth and I would say that scientists uh, don't try to get at the truth or uh, they should not try to get at the truth the truth in science is always aspirational and that's why we talk about validating hypotheses not verifying a hypothesis, and the hypothesis is correct until it's proven otherwise. So as, as scientists, at least uh, the way that, that I was taught to the science and the way that I, that I teach my trainees is that you try to eliminate hypotheses that are incorrect, and, uh, and hopefully you get to narrow down more and more the actual answer. But, uh, but as, as a scientist, you have to be always in the mind frame 
that you need to be questioning your own results and, uh, and the results of others, of course, but, uh, but all the time you're supposed to be revising your framework in light of no evidence. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this question. Uh, we can spend two, two more hours just, just answering this, right? Um, you asked what is information. Uh, forget about misinformation, what is information? And that, that bothered every thinker since we learned how to, to put our, our mind into words, right? I mean, that's, that's Greek philosophy, that's Plato thinking about the people in the cave trying to, to figure out if they are really seeing the world or not. Um, I'll, I'll kind of get inspiration from all the uh, statues of Sigmund Freud in this building and, and go to another Austrian philosopher of science, which is Karl Popper, right? And, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm a very strong Popperian person. And I think he reminded us that science is about, as you said, science is not the search for information. It's the, it's the systematic rejection of misinformation. We would never be able to, to prove with certainty that anything that we see in, in studies is true, right? right? The best we can do is to reject hypotheses that are wrong. We, we are able logically to reject some ideas. And then at any given moment, we need to take the actions that are uh, most suitable to, to the current state of knowledge that we have at that point. Take vaccines, for example, that you talked about before. Um, can, uh, can we say for certain that vaccines have no negative impact? Of course not. We can't. Scientifically, we can't. We can just reject uh, the, the hypothesis that, um, that people who take the vaccines are more likely than others to have autism, for example. We can reject this hypothesis, but we cannot say for sure that vaccines will never have uh, a negative uh, influence. So, so yes, science is, the, is kind of Sisyphus' uh, work in this regard. We will never get to the truth, um, but I think we are able to gather enough consensus on what's wrong to direct policy and, and, and behavior that's more educated. I, I wanted to make a real quick response to this, too. Um, there's, uh, I think there's, there are different sort of sorts of misinformation, and when the consequence of misinformation could be dangerous. Of course, we, we don't, we, we want to figure out a way to get around that. A, a famous director, now sort of infamous director, had this wonderful little bit where he was, his neurotic child version of himself was being reprimanded by his mother who said, what's it your business if the universe is expanding, right? So, so the idea is, okay, you know what, if the universe is expanding or not, it's, we don't need to get to the bottom of that. It's okay with us if you don't accept authority on that. But, you know, if you go to your doctor and you have a, you know, God forbid you have a cancer and the treatment that's going to be offered for you, and oftentimes if they're experimental treatments, they'll even tell you in advance, I can't even say this is going to be good or safe for you. But you have to make a decision. You know, that's where the rubber meets the road. You, you then, I think, you're best off putting your trust in the doctor. And in return, the doctor has to have in his or her mind the idea that I don't want to let my patient down because this is a, almost like a sacred trust that's being placed on me. So that means we have to go back and make sure that this, this treatment is good and valid. Sometimes you don't know at any particular point in time. But trust is another, again, comes up as another important feature separating information from misinformation. And not always making a clear demarcation, right? Then there, there cannot be, which is part of, I think, what your question entails. 
Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. Actually, that response was very closely related to the question I wanted to ask because um, so there's an implication to certain kinds of misinformation. And um, so we touched on regula regulation before. My question's about are there other kinds of regulatory capacity in sort of societies that exist today or that we can build into our societies? Because if certain kinds of misinformation might imply certain kinds of harm to specific people and they're endowed with certain kinds of voices. So my question is, is it possible to think of how, how can that create the harm, potential harm of misinformation, how can that create feedback loops to like a repair, re repair capacity? Um, is it possible? I mean, I think this raises, I mean, I think this is an interesting question that raises, um, the, you know, raises the, um, the challenge as to how we sort of build um, sort of uh, responsive um, mechanisms of accountability uh, for any kind of um, regulatory, you know, regime that we end up wanting to have. So, you know, what are the rules, um, rules of the road for content moderation and platform governance? And who, you know, who gets to decide who gets a voice and how these rules are determined? I think... Um, there's a strong case to be made that um, whether this is being channeled through like, legislatures or some other citizens' bodies, those bodies should be you know, representative of the diversity of interest in society, and very much including people who are um, the victims of, I mean, not only misinformation, but you know, uh, you know, uh, harassment and um, hateful speech um, that can delegitimize people, delegitimize groups, and um, make it more difficult to participate um, as citizens. When, when we say regulation, we, we usually think of content moderation, right? Removing information that is wrong or adding some disclaimers and so on. But recently some uh, scholars raised some more creative approaches to regulation. And one that I, I found really interesting is uh, the one suggested by Victor Picard uh, from the University of Pennsylvania. He says, instead of uh, focusing on, on moderation of content, Let's um, take taxes from social media companies. They make a lot of money from that misinformation, right? Let's take some taxes back and use it to fund uh, high-quality journalism. You can create a fund and, and that, that kind of you know, builds on all the money that's that being made from our misinformation and build more reliable institutions of knowledge with it. So maybe, maybe there are more solutions that we're not thinking about, but there are... Mm -hmm more creative than just, you know, running after the next mistake and trying to correct it all the time. Well, I think that's wonderful. It's a great point to, high point to end on. Yeah, it's not my idea. But it's a great, it's a great <laughs> comment. No, and I, I and, it, and I'm, I'm really pleased to hear all the different efforts to sort of come up with some, you know, handle some solution on this uh, issue. And I th want to thank you, all three of you, for, for contributing the way you did. Thank you. Great. Thank you.